Welcome to the Reticle Up Podcast, where I, Three Gun Kenzie, will be interviewing competitive shooters, hunters, fishermen, archers, entrepreneurs, and outdoorsmen. Come learn with me as I interview people from all walks of life, in different disciplines, all across the world, from novices to professionals of all ages. No matter what, everyone has something they can teach you. So come join me on the journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the Red Club Podcast. I'm here with my friend Frank Maloney. Now, he's got official titles, but I'm going to tell you, he's one of the coolest people I know. He's definitely super deep into the firearms industry as a writer. He actually owns his firearms training instruction as well. Man, he hunts, which he has some sick property I've seen that he hunts on. So he literally wakes up or walks a few yards and, you know, hunts, uh, but also was on Top Shot. So Frank, thank you for joining Mr. Man of Thanks for everything. having me. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah, a few yards, maybe. I mean, I have we have a bedroom gun now. Oh, we got a nice Hawksworth suppressor, and I'm serious. I believe it. I believe <laughs> and it. A ray, and a Ray Thermal. So, you know, this is going to be that morning. We've been hearing the coyote coming quite a bit. Yeah, so they're, yeah. And they're getting closer and closer because the woods are getting full of gut piles. Oh so, yeah. <laughs> and I've seen your house. Your house is cool because there's three levels to it. So technically, there's like a million vantage points to shoot a coyote. Out of your house. One of one of the best ones we have is actually from the shower. So <laughs> <laughs> I can picture that. That's the best part. It's the it's the highest up, and uh, you can see almost the entire property from there. It's great. <laughs> awesome. Oh man. Okay. So with you, because I actually don't know your full kind of like journey, and I kind of want the longer story. I just want to know, like, how did Frank even arrive into the firearms industry and get into this crazy world that we call our full-time, like, life? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I always tell everyone, oh, geez, this is going to sound so corny, but take the shot, right? Take the shot. Back before, ah, let me date myself a little bit. I used to watch TV on the internet before it was cool. Right. I mean, like for the longest time, I barely I, I was deep, deeply involved with hand loading and everything else shooting. Even before I was in the industry, I just turned it into work, which I don't know why the hell I did that. But it, yeah, there's, there's two sides of that. We'll get to that, too. Yeah. So I was watching Top Shot on History Channel and season two just aired. And then, you know, I never knew how they found the people for these shows and said, try out for Top Shot. And, you know, like the pop up. And I was like. It's like two in the morning. I'm going to send an email. Uh, and this was like, five, I read what needed to be done. I was like, it was like, you needed six weeks off of work. And I was like, that's not going to happen. And the deadline was like five days. I was like, at least I could say I sent an email. I sent an email. And then the next morning I get a, a voicemail from one of the producers. And I used to work in a in an elementary school in a basement in the pool area. I had no service at all. So I didn't get the message till I came out like for dinner time around six o'clock. And the message was, this is so-and-so from so-and-so production. I don't know how much I could say. And we need you to get us a video right away. And first, I walked back in. I was like, yeah, it's one of my friends in here. I don't know what language is that with this, but it's one of my friends in here messing with me. And then I went back to work, and probably like 15 minutes went by, and I realized I haven't even told anybody about this yet. I realized it was real. You know, this is California, so with the time difference, I was still able to get somebody in the office and sent them a video. We went out there. I don't know how much of the tryout process I can really talk about, but it was, I'll say this, it was a bona fide match. Um, different disciplines, rifles, pistols, different distances, just different scenarios. And we were all scored time, you know, so, and then from that, they picked X amount. And from there, they picked X amount from there. And the rest is history on the show. I don't know if you've seen season four or not, so I won't give away how long I was in for, but you don't have to invest a lot of time into the show if you want to see where it ends. Frank. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I tell everyone, I was like, you know, it comes with four DVDs. You don't even need those last three. <laughs> um, <laughs> so from there, the big question from the producers was, how come we don't have any formal training? And it was, well, there's really nowhere for formal training on Long Island. And then I went home and thought about it. I was like, there's really nowhere for formal training on Long Island. And some time went by and a shout out to Ian Harrison. We spoke, we all kind of introduced each other on Facebook after the, after season four aired. It was kind of like a tradition that went on. And season five was not new shooters. It was the, like the, the 
I don't want to say great assist, but that takes it away as the top shot champs. I forget what we called it. All-Stars, right, the All-Stars. Yeah, so we never got a chance to introduce that new group, but it was like a, a tradition where, you know, everyone would get together and, you know, bombard the new the new cast, right, when it came out. And Ian Harrison, I think he had a, a career in construction before he started working with Crimson Trace. And I said, I was like, hey, I want that. How do I do that? I didn't know what that was, but I knew I wanted to be in the industry somewhere. And he said, go get to SHOT Show. I mean, and I was his poor at this time. I mean, to get to Vegas and SHOT Show, I mean, I had like the last like 800 bucks in my account. And I was like, what am I going to do? I don't even have any credentials to get into the show other than being on TV. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, go get an NRA certified instructor. And I was like, great. Here's another 350 bucks. Luckily, I was able to find one upstate New York, about a four hour drive from me. I got my rifle instructor credential. And then I sat down and I was like, well, if I just spent all this money to put on a business card. I might as well start training people. I could tie the top shot name to it and all that mess. And I did. And I, I actually had a, a really... A, a real passion for it. It turned out I was pretty good at it, judging from my students' progress, not from how I felt I did, which is one of the things I love about firearms instruction because there's no, I'm just going to, this is going to be PG 13. There's no bullshitting. There's absolutely none. And I tell my students this in this word I said, listen, I can't tell you doing good if the target doesn't look good. And I can't feel I'm doing good if you're not improving. Mm-hmm. And if you feel you're improving and the targets are telling us, the target doesn't lie, then you're doing well. So word got out. I got pretty busy with the one on ones to the point where I needed to start doing classes. And my credential was for NRA rifle, which meant I was able to teach that course. And in 2012, 2012, I taught my first NRA basic rifle course, packed, 16 people, filled up in a few weeks. And it just kind of went from there. Then some time went on and I added other credentials and we added, uh, NRA, uh, or really just shotgun instructor, because you can do everything with it, but shotgun, pistol, and reloading, which was one of the rarest ones out there. Mm-hmm. And through that, um, can I drop names, industry names? Yeah, I mean, why not? They're in the industry. They, they know it. it's, it's not a secret. But through that and through introductions at SHOT Show, I met, met a lot of people, but one of the most influential was uh, Everett Dager, who at the time was with Hornady, but now he's with Kimber. So he's been around in, in a few different roles. The industry's with Walter for a while, too. And he hooked me up with a tremendous amount of tooling to start the reloading course. And every event, he was one of the people that I visit. And, you know, he's he put it in my ears like, you know, aside from using it in the uh, classes, you ever think about writing about any of this stuff? I was like, well, I have to write about having outlets. So I started with... I kept my eye out for that, and something showed up on Facebook for it was a website called gunnews.com. Okay. It was a small blog, and I started with that. And then from there, I started writing for On Target, and then from On Target, the NRA Publications, Athlon, and in the last three years was OSG, so Guns and Ammo SIP, um, Shooting Times, uh, fingers crossed for Rifle Shooter soon. Yeah. Cool. So. Wow. Yeah, now, and that's, that brings us here. <laughs> I have to know too, did you ever track, I should have done this, did you ever track like how many publications you had or like ever, did you start from ground zero when you got started of like, I have this in print, this in digital, this here? Oh, you mean like how many articles? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I should be crossing a thousand this year. Shut up. So you actually tracked all that. Wait, this mm-hmm. year, 2023? Well, no, this year coming up. Okay. December, the year's over in December. Okay, I just uh, yeah, I'm at like, yeah, I'm at like 850 something. So it's real easy to track. I mean, I keep a spreadsheet just of what I have coming up and then it's status, you know, from products requested, submitted, published, paid, you know, it depends on which publication. Yeah. And then it's just real easy. It's just look at the numbers like, there you go. So, so was this like, I mean, you said you kept your eye out on the horizon and stuff. Was it something though that for writing like came naturally? Was it something that you really sucked at first? Like I know my experience as a writer, so I'm curious where yours was at. <laughs> so I'll, t- I'll tell you this. Um, sucked in different areas. Let's say that. <laughs> But really good in some. So guidance counselors are were awful. At least mine was. And I went to school. I went to college for electronics. I got a, an associate's in electronical engineering and technologies. And three semesters in, I realized it wasn't something I wanted to do. But that fourth semester, I stuck around for for my elective classes to just to get my two year degree. I took technical writing, and I really enjoyed it. I did well in the course. And kind of just like sat on that for whatever the time between college and Top Shot was, plus a year. 
12 years, 10 years, something like that, and never really did anything with it. And then when I started writing about things that I really understood, I, I really enjoyed it. Feedback on my articles are they're very detailed. The most common one I've gotten from most editors is readable. And, you know, I'm in, I'm very deep into the ammo space and the reloading space. And, you know, when you're starting to talk about ballistics and just all the stuff that makes a bullet do what it does, it's very tough to digest. And, you know, I've been touted as being readable, which is what I, I really I take as a huge compliment. Grammar, awful. <laughs> I needed to learn where commas go, semicolons, hyphens run on sentences but you know the beauty of technology is you know taught me you know helped me fill in the gaps because i'm not an english major i never was <laughs> i'm just taking a few english courses along another major so you do you use grammarly i do absolutely <laughs> me too it's not made for gun writers no, you know because like i love like like when we talk about you know it's great for taking game it always wants to add a game you know and it's it's extremely woke grammarly so yeah. you can go into the settings and you know i actually pay for the premium i bought it for a year yeah. and i, I kind of yeah. enjoy it but to tell you the truth i only use the basic features i almost never use any of the other ones but like you can turn off all the different triggers which is probably the perfect word for it of you know like okay so like so, you know, I'll write about ammo and I'll write man stopping capability. You know, it should, that should be people stopping. It's yep. just like. Yep. <laughs> so I do the same exact thing. And it's funny because like I'll run it through Grammarly and I'll turn it into an editor and they know I use Grammarly. And I'm like, ignore the red flags when it comes up on your Grammarly because it's trying to correct like stages as yep. a stage or whatever. I'm like, no, like yeah, exactly. legit stuff. Mm -hmm. That's really funny. No, um, it's, I mean, it's the English. It's the English teacher I never had. And you learn from it, you yeah. know, I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, I always try to, it's almost like a game to me. It's like, let me write, write this clean the first time. Mm -hmm. And I just about get there and editors love it. You know, and I mean, you if started, you can submit. You started with Polaroids, didn't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I got it out of them. I got it out of them. One for kids. No one out of it. <laughs> a little drop of a curse word. That's what I wanted. Uh, we're back to the oh, drop. Right? Oh, I could help with that. <laughs> No, I, I want to know too, like, how did those skills develop? Because that was one of the, the stuff or the areas that like, I didn't have the tools for it. It's like, I fell into it and I was like, okay, I'm going to use what I have. Now I have a camera I never thought I would have. You know what I mean? Oh, photography? Yeah. So that's another one of those things that I never thought I'd enjoy, but I kind of do enjoy. But at the same time, it's, there's only so many photos I want to take, you know, because at some point it becomes double the work. You know, so I don't mind a couple of good product photos, especially if it's like a, a build or something. But, you know, there is social media today and we, me and you especially, have so many contacts that are amazing photographers, you know, so I could always hit them up and be like, you know, like, like Andy helped me tremendously with like my wife, Andy Grossman yep. helped me tremendously with like white box photos, you know, like understanding lighting and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, Oleg Volk is in our circle. So, you know, his knowledge is about portraits is, is mind blowing. You know, I mean, and Alex, you know, Dean, always yeah. super helpful with all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I kind of just pieced it together there. I, I kind of, the photos, my photos always are like second to the, the research and the, the manuscript, but I try to make them as not gun writery as possible. And any photographer that works with us will know exactly what that means, you know, like <laughs> like the, the awkward top down angle of stupid things and, you know, like 10 feet away from the subject, you know, I mean, like things like that. So, but that's been a, a, a challenge, you know, but I, I think it's getting there. But so no. the cool thing is that you, you have a team, you've got a barb. So you also have a teammate who's also a fellow writer, who's yep. also just happened to meet, you know, Mary Brewer. Yeah. So you guys get an awesome <laughs> opportunity though, to like help each other out, which is something like I, I envy. I think that's a like super good resource to have is someone who lives with you can take photos. <laughs> it's a gift. It's a gift and a curse. I'll tell you that it's yeah. It's tough on the relationship. Sometimes you want to watch us fight. You should watch us take pictures together <laughs> because you know, when you're married to somebody, you're at it, you, you build this, well, you should know what I want by now, you know, and back and forth with each other. And it gets rough, but absolutely, you know, I mean, she's, she's instrumental in my success. Just the organizational stuff too. She helps me with so much. Like it's, you know, like the, it's the little BS test that I don't want to do that. I appreciate her most for like packing, like packing guns and stuff Aww. like that. Like things in and out of our books. And, but yeah, it's, we do work. We do, we've done a few pieces together. They were submitted to Athlon. So we'll see where they turn up. But yeah, we've done a few. One was our our marriage and two shotguns with the CZ Bob Whites because they had the an intermediate and the southpaw. I'm left-handed, so there's a couple of good ones there. 
but yeah, it's, that's fine. That's awesome. Now I know I want to dive into the training and all the reloading stuff too, but something that intrigues me that I don't know if you want to just talk about briefly was that you guys moved from out of New York. So like how different was that for you guys to get out of that environment? Did it change stuff for you on like the gun stuff and the ownership or, or was that kind of a, a seamless kind of transition? Change things, the ownership. So let me just, uh, I summarize it this way in New York, I couldn't have an 11 round magazine. In Pennsylvania, I could build a machine gun in my garage. <laughs> so we left New York. Well, here's the thing. We never really left New York. That's the other thing, too. And most people don't realize this, but I'm, I'm a New York resident. I still live in New York, but we have two homes. We have a home in New York. We have a home in Pennsylvania. So this is our summer home. And uh, we spend a ton of time up here when we can, which is great. You know, with what we do, we can do that anywhere. We do it much more easily here. Yeah. So... The final push in New York was the gun legislature. So we've been dealing with it head on and actually profiting off of a lot of it while fighting it, though. That's another thing. So long and short of it, they'd make a law. We would work around it, drive interest, fill our courses on that interest, and just keep pushing back until something changes, right? So the last bit of of gun control was the shortest way to explain this. Okay, so handguns. You cannot touch a handgun in New York State. I mean, literally touch. Like, like, ha ha, oh, Frank, touch. I mean, like, you can't go into a gun store and say, I want to feel the stippling on this. Just, that's illegal to touch it. Literally what? can't touch it. Now, you have to, that's the law. You have to get a one one of, at the time, four types of permits that all had limited amounts of carry built into them, and then you could own a handgun and use a handgun. So the last batch of gun control laws classified semi-automatic rifles as handguns, essentially, right? So they just added or semi-automatic rifle and all the pistol laws. So now I can't give a 19, I can't give a 21, a 20 year old kid a Ruger 1022. Oh my God. Legally, not give. Like here, shoot this on the firing line while I teach you marksmanship. So that killed our AR-15 shoot. That killed our historic firearm shoot. You know, that really impacted the way we do NRA basic rifle. And then you have handguns, which have been regulated there too as well. So that kind of hurt us. Now, one thing that helped us previously to that was uh, for gun control, talking about profiting from. We we started teaching the New York State mandatory concealed carry course, which is, you know, you hear about these courses in other states like $35, $40. We're on the low side of things, and we are around 500 at the low side per student. Wow. We're taking that money, filtering wow. it into a lawsuit, and we are suing the state and the county with it. There's a GoFundMe for it, too. I can send you the link later if you want to post it with that. Yeah. For awesome sure. if you could. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's what that's how we fight gun control there. But the one that really hurt was the two. One, ammunition background checks, which will become a massive problem every time I have to it's bad enough I have to deal with I don't say deal with I love my friends at the gun store, Long Island gun stores, seven eighty two gun works have been huge for us. They have helped us through so much of this, you know. I mean, like letting us go in even 10 minutes before the store opens, just so we can get our paperwork in and be the first ones in and out. You know, I'll go in there and get 10 guns at a time. Yeah. But to deal with that with ammunition, with all the ammunition that we get would have been a disaster. But that one, and then the threat of micro stamping, which is hopefully all going away. But if it got to the point where we could only get any gun that was micro stamped and it also couldn't be semi-automatic, what would I have left to write about, right? So both me and Barb would have been completely screwed. So a year prior to this, we bought this place up here and we said, why don't we live up there or spend more time up there? And we did. We have our FFL, SOT, our manufacturer up here also. So there's very little we can't do or test. And then, as you mentioned, I have, I'm pointing at the 10 acres behind me, I have a rifle range of property, a shotgun range, a steel pit, which you've shot at with us. So the process of testing a gun went from find a way, find time to get to the gun store, pick the gun up, drive 45 minutes. Let's close that notification here. Drive 45 minutes to the range, test it, get whatever photos we need there, get back, and then to return. Now, getting a pistol on and off your license is a process like going to the DMV. You have to... Go to the, in New York, you have to go to the gun store, 
then take the paperwork to the pistol bureau, which is like 15 miles away, and then back to the gun store. And then at one point, you just have to bring the gun back to the pistol bureau, too, and reverse the process with the fee each time. Now the guns show up here. I log them in a book. I shoot. I mean, I can literally take a gun from my doorstep through a test, through an article in seven hours and submit it. So life is... I severely love Wait. both of you, and I severely envy both of you at the same time. I'm not gonna lie; it's a it's been a dream. It's been a dream come true. It's been something that I've been working towards my entire life, and it's my sole vocation now: the writing and the instruction. Instruction is by the nature of things after COVID, after the restrictions, slowing down, and and that's just fine. That's just gonna be more free weekends for me and my team to do other things and work on other areas. So we're kind of just going to float what it is and really maybe just after, after COVID take a little breather. <laughs> yeah. Now, okay. What got you into the reloading stuff? Cause I know you and Barb both are really into reloading. I hate reloading. So I know people watch this podcast, see the deal one behind me. It just sits there. Like it's really cute, but for real, you guys are gun ho into it. And so did you learn on your own? Did you read, you said you watched videos before it was cool. Like how did you get into that process? So let me back this up right here. What you have back there isn't really a reloader. That's an assembler, right? So you reassemble ammunition and that's fine. I have one over here too. It's a different color, but I have the same style of press back here. This is red. Um, yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, obviously. Right. <laughs> and nothing's wrong with them either. You're going to make tons of ammunition. That's going to be relatively accurate, probably still better than store-bought, more consistent, and you're still going to get the tailoring to recoil and things you like on there. But it's not the degree of rabbit holing that I believe that gets someone bitten and interested in it. So when I sat down, I used to do a lot of shooting at Pennsylvania State Game Lands, even way before we moved out here. I've always had a house in Pennsylvania in the other corner of the state, and I used to spend tons of time up there. And you would meet a lot of different people. Some knew what they were talking about, some didn't, which both play into it. So the rifle I had was a box stock rifle, and it was in 308. Again, dating myself. This was probably about 20 years ago. And I was, you know, a shooter of the, I had no money. Played it simple. I was in, like in my early 20s. And I was shooting the cheapest ammo I could find, which at that time, 308 was like $9, $10 a box. So it was still, you know, good. But, you know, match ammunition was still a dollar a round. I never wanted to shoot it. And then somebody told me, they're like, you know, that rifle can put all those bolts in the same hole. And I'm thinking, like, at this point, I was like, you know, the only guns out there that could really do that were, like, the Sakos, Accuries, Internationals, things like that. You know, and this was a big box store rifle. It, it's a good rifle, but it's, it's nothing like, are you, like that. <laughs> and then they started telling me about hand loading, you know, and these are all, this is just a, a culmination of different people I met at the range. And showed me some of their rifles shoot that way. And I was very interested. Then I started looking at it and just understanding what you can do to make brass more consistent, to make round to round more consistent, the way you can tailor around to do what you need it to do. Even just your target work, really grabbing. The idea that you can take a $400 AR-15 build, maybe 450 if you're doing a nice bull barrel and hit a 10 inch seal at a thousand yards, nine, 10 shots in a row sold reloading to me, yeah. you know, and then it's cheaper too. So it's just so much is happening there. You know, I don't know how deep you want me to get into it, oh, but no, I mean, that's really no it. Point. It's just, there's, I yeah. think, so, I mean, think diving into though, well, like and, how does someone get into single press, progressive press? How does people even begin to look at, yeah, like any components, right? Like I, I kind of want you to touch on that since I don't, I am not an expert <laughs> at all. No, no problem. Absolutely. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is what do you want to achieve? Do you want to achieve high volume, low dollar ammunition, or do you want to achieve precision ammunition? I will say this for a single stage press on my bench right now, I have an RCBS rock chucker, which is the same RCBS rock chucker I've had for more than 20 years. It probably has several hundred thousand rounds through it and it has no sign of any kind of give to it. And then, yeah, I have a, a horn and ammo plant there as well for my progressive means. So You'll always need a single stage press. Single stage press performs one operation at a time. Sizing, sometimes two. Sizing and decapping happen in one stroke. 
than whatever dye you have in there. So you'll have a sizer dye, a seeding dye, sometimes a crimp dye if it's not part of the cedar dye, a taper dye, blah, 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 blah. On a progressive press, it does all of these in one stroke because you have all the dyes up top. So one of the things you lose with that is uh, really your attention to detail on one specific operation. So a single stage press is less, less expensive, easier to learn on too, because you only have to watch one operation at a time. And then you'll also get your greater precision out of that for a number of reasons. But the most basic one is you have control of each operation, right? So it also gives you opportunities to take the brass out of the machine, do it at every kind of preparation you need to it, and then get back into it. So I always recommend a single stage press um, to start off with. I had a bare bones reloading article coming out in a publication soon. I can't talk about it yet till it's it's out there. But there's the reloading zone series on I'm not sure which Athlon website. It should be on Tactical Life. You know, there's some changes going on at Athlon. I'm sure anyone that's got their ear to the industry knows that's that's going on. But I don't think the digital is going to be too affected. So it should still be on Tactical Life our website. We just wrapped up season four. But a good single stage press or single stage press kit. The way I learned. Old school. Back in my day, old school. <laughs> before YouTube, believe it or not, I was probably I'm probably the last generation of hand loader to learn from this manual and not all the stuff on YouTube. You know, now I'm, now I'm making videos. The Lyman manual is probably the best reloading resource you could have. But yeah, there's tons of video resources out there too. The most important thing though is that you get all your data from a manual. Because yeah. these guys use this bullet and this powder until it blew up at this point. Well, maybe one beyond it. So they've hurt themselves and their equipment, so you don't have to. Um, and Lyman's in their 50, 51st edition now, too. So that's the best way to get into it, you know. And then, of course, you know, YouTube. And I have that video series. And if you could find one, because they're far and few in between, and you can vet the instructor beyond their basic credentials, you know, the NRA reloading course, at least the way we teach it, it's instrumental, you know. We set our equipment up with inert powders, inert primers. So if you make a mistake, you have options, right? You don't have to worry about blowing something up and things like that. And then you know you'll be working with somebody knowledgeable so that we can walk you through the process. And that's always a great way to learn too. Yeah, I think mentorship is key in a lot of things in the industry, whether it is like getting into competition shooting, reloading, like hunting. I mean, God, I, so I do want to dive into hunting too. I feel like I was so fortunate to be able to go and hunt. Like I grew up duck hunting. It's like I was, it's normal for me because I got to see that process. But now if like when I deer hunted, I was much older and I'm like, I don't even know where to go. I don't know what I need. I don't know. It's overwhelming. And if I had to do public land, I'd probably just shoot myself in the foot right now because it's like, it's too much. To, it's a lot though, right? Like how can... It's very intimidating, I would say, for anybody looking into the gun industry world to get into anything without help. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and mentoring is a two-way street, too. A lot of people don't realize that, but when you ask somebody to take you out to do something, you're helping them because a lot of times they're looking for somebody to go with them. And, you know, they, they say to teach is to learn twice. And I've always found that to be spider through my entire existence, especially in instruction, where I might not think about the basics or fundamentals ever. But if I'm sitting down with a brand new shooter, then I'll think about it then. And I'll think about it next time I shoot too. Yeah. And it, it, it's just such a symbiotic relationship that's overlooked. But hunting, I got into later in life as well. I didn't get into hunting till right after Top Shot. I met Keith Gibson there and he had his own property. Upstate New York, he had like 440 acres, so tons of land. And he taught me how to squirrel hunt, deer hunt, and all that kind of stuff. I've had other mentors as well. But yeah, public land is tough. You know, the beautiful thing about public land is depending on where you live, usually you could access it all year long. Yeah. So get to learn your public land, you know, in the summer, in the spring and, you know, look for signs of deer, you know, look for droppings, most common tracks, very easy to determine deer tracks versus other tracks. You know, you have a hoof there. There's only a few animals out there with hooves, let alone in the woods. Um, <laughs> especially after it rains, you know, pretty easy. And then figure out your trails, you know, walk through the woods and then look back and you'll see what a trail looks like. Find the other trails, find the ones that there's no humanly reason to be going towards one spot, you know, especially towards like food or water that's in, and the deeper you go, usually the better, not always, you know, suburban deer usually stay closer to that, to the house. And that's actually a problem we have here is some of the biggest deer have a house as the backdrop and they know it, <laughs> they can't shoot them because it's just not safe. But, you know, it's, uh, it's trial and error. And, you know, I just had a friend here who was, we spent three days hunting and 
he just didn't have any luck. And I told him, I said, you know, it's not just about taking the shot. You have to really enjoy um, the other things out in the woods. You have to just enjoy being in the woods, you know, just the experiences, you know, like you'll get close to all wildlife, not even what you're targeting. I mean, you know, to have a squirrel come down and land on your shoulder, you know, it's like that won't happen anytime you're not hunting. Things like that, you know. It's like your favorite napping place too is the woods. It is my absolute favorite. So I recommend everyone wear a harness in a tree stand. I've never fallen out, you know, yet. But the number one reason I wear one is not because I'm worried I'm going to slip or fall or something's going to happen to a tree, but I always fall asleep up there. Always fall asleep. But it's always like a minute or two minutes, you know, but it is so peaceful and it's the best sleep you can get. Yeah, actually, me and Barbara going out tomorrow, so it's going to be kind of an early night. So yeah. Yeah, last, we got one more week of rifle season. Okay. I was going to say, did you, I saw your post that maybe you didn't already. Did you take the 360 buck hammer out yet? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I took the 360 buck hammer out when it was released. It was an American rifleman. So I wrote the article for that. Or one of the first articles, I was one of the first people to go out and uh, take a deer with it. Two deer, two deer out in, in Ohio. And I'm not sure if it's public information yet, but there's going to be a, a big reloading piece somewhere. On three <laughs> Okay. Uh, with subsonic data. So I actually did some subsonic work with Silencer Central and a, and a Henry X, and it is a really cool round to suppress. Really cool. Oh, yeah. A lot of energy, ton of energy, and stupid quiet. Yeah. Oh, yes. Now, I, like you, have divin- dove into the suppressor world. I'm not an SOT, but one day. But I was going to say, the suppressors, like, I've always hunted suppress in terms of, like, rifle stuff, and now, like, I can't stand to be around. There was one other hunter that wanted to go hunting and like didn't have suppressor. And I'm like, this is the worst ever to wear ears the whole day. Like, so can you speak to like what it's like hunting with suppressors and why everyone should do it? Sure. So number one, depends on the hunting, right? I deer hunt. We're taking one shot and you're not going to get another shot that day anyway. So whether or not it's quiet or not really doesn't matter. But I will tell you this, <laughs> the last few days, it, it well the last few days have been 20 20 degrees so i'm wearing earmuffs anyway just to keep my ears warm and you know before i get into hunting with suppressors you know there's like a big segment of i don't wear ear protection when i hunt today's ear protection you could hear more it's like putting hearing aids on so i can't imagine not wearing them so i almost always wear uh hearing protection you're, even also, if I'm old. Shooting you're also old but us younger people can hear me <laughs> but you can hear better with ear protection um <laughs> no. No, well, no I, I, I think that's the right ear electronics. Pro. But I actually don't, people don't know this about me unless they ask, because I don't prefer electronic hearing because like I can't do 3D motion movies. I can't do the electronic in my ear all day. It actually like gives yeah. me a headache more than anything. But I agree, like the sounds are amplified. But you know what pisses me off is it amplifies the squirrels and the rabbits and not the deer. <laughs> You'll never hear the deer. So that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I was telling my buddy that. He's like, oh, I'll hear one. I was like, listen. And he's like, I heard one back there all day long. I said, no. I said, if you hear it, it's not a deer. It's not a deer. I took one two days ago that was 10 feet to my right, slight coming up from behind me. I didn't realize she, they, four, all four of them made it up on me and I couldn't hear them until they were right. The last footstep. I was like, oh, um, a good friend of mine, Keith, says this, and I've probably written it half a dozen times in articles. They have a full-time, their full-time job is staying alive. They are way better at staying undetected that you, than you are at detecting them. Yep. But back to suppressors, uh, squirrel hunting, it's a must. It's a yep. must. If you're, if you're squirrel hunting with a shotgun, it's an absolute must. Because with subsonic ammunition, I use a CCI suppressor to make a really good hollow point product. It's just dead quiet. It's quieter than the air guns that I have. <laughs> and the nice thing about that is you take a shot, you don't ruin the woods. So when you have a tree with like three or four squirrels, you can one, two, three, and, you know, bag out pretty quick. And then it's also usually warm weather. So I don't want to wear hearing protection then, unless the mosquitoes are bad, because then I keep them out of ears. But realistically, a suppressor almost always. What's funny is that I know this about you too, where is we're that at, you're also... We are- Anti-iPro, not anti, but like if you could just and not have ear or eyewear on, you would prefer that. So I took a ricochet in my leg once about 10 years ago from a, a bad piece of club steel. 
and I've worn eye protection ever since. Now, I don't like when it's humid and they're fogging. That kind of sucks. But I, I'm pretty pretty good about wearing my eye protection now. Um, you get to suppressors. From that ricochet, exactly. because that was in my eye. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also left-handed, so actually, when I'm shooting, when I'm shooting suppressors, I have to wear them. Otherwise, I'm eating all of that on the, out of the ejection port. And there's some of the designs like that Huxworks is really good about mitigating that. I love that, but yeah, I kind of have to wear them then. Um, but no, when it's 90 degrees out, it, it's a little bit of a chore to wear. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. But yeah, squirrel hunting, I always like to make sure I have a suppressor on. Deer hunting can go either way. Yeah, you know, it is nice, you know, especially if you if you got two guys in a blind right next to each other then you know me and fred were hunting suppressed we were hawk hunting suppressed which was at night fred masterson yep we were out with sight mark and that was at night so if you're hunting at night <laughs> uh yeah that's why we killed <laughs> hey <laughs> yeah you each got one Andy and i split it andy and i are bonded for life frank <laughs> no suppressors yeah uh, hunting at night hunting at night with suppressors is uh, yeah do that <laughs> <laughs> do that no i think that was interesting and from a helicopter and from a helicopter. I think Texas is normal. They're way cooler, but it's like, yeah, hunting at night, you really do need suppress. Not just for your neighbors, probably some ordinances, but yeah, be quiet. <laughs> well, same thing. You know, hogs are like big squirrels. You know, you're not going to just shoot one. You're going to shoot, you know, dozens of them after you have a good night. Maybe not dozens, but, you know, between a group, it's easy to take in 12. You know, that's not, that's not hard. You know, and same thing. If you don't have to spoil the woods, then why, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. So suppressors. I know you've done some really cool stuff. We, and I know you mentioned Sightmark because that was like a highlight for me. I want to know, like, in the whole time that you've been in the industry, like, what are some pretty epic experiences you've gotten to do? It's on your, like, oh shit, I did that. My first shot show, without a doubt. Yeah. My first shot show was surreal. You know, from Long Island, you, you see a lot of celebrities, but the amount that were there and then the amount that knew you was surreal it's just like oh my god you're my hero it's just like wait you know who i am i'm crazy that was yeah i mean if we start from there that helicopter hunt was i still don't have the words for it but i can't talk too much about everything that was involved but we were basically hot you know, we there was a few of us but we were basically hired on shooting ability because we were very close to houses and who could fit in the back of a helicopter and a five seven with boots on. Yeah, that, that was me. We did that with Trigicon. That was pretty cool. And then we were joking around about how bombproof the the new or the ACOGs in general were. We were testing the ACOG Mini. And Josh, their marketing rep, says, you know what? Why don't you take the helicopter up and throw it out? And I did. We went to 100 feet on the dot, threw it out down in, you know, it's Texas and rocks and just hard yeah. dirt. It wasn't like, you know, in rock and the damn thing held zero. <laughs> so that, that was probably one of the coolest, if not the coolest thing I've ever done. You know, I mean, it's, you never know what's going to come through your inbox, which is what I love about it. So that could be topped any and every minute. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, you never know what comes from. Yeah. Is it, what's on your bucket list? Like I'm assuming probably maybe an Africa hunt or like what else is yeah, there? Af Africa is definitely on there. It's a rite of passage. And Close, a close, a close rival to the, uh, the helicopter hunt was with Mossberg and Linda Powell in Alberta a uh, on a black bear hunt. I shot an eight footer. It was the second bear I've seen hunting. I've seen a few in the woods before, you know, camping, which is not cool, but you know, there they are. Second bear I've ever seen. The one before that was five minutes prior. So I was at two bear to pick from and one was massive, but on my bucket list and probably as close as I've been to is I really want to see 24 hours of daylight and 24 hours of nighttime. Two different trips to Alaska at some point just to see that. And then, you know, Alaska, I have an instructor who said, you know, Alaska is not the kind of place you go only once. And, you know, there's so much there, you know, between the fishing and the hunting, you know, I mean, yeah. So Alaska and Africa are definitely on the list. Can you send me to one? Oh, no, I want to go to Africa as well. But here's the cool thing about us talking about this is I know some guides that I won't mention here because they started it in South Africa, but we could get a group by and go do it. And like legitimately, I know a couple other people I want to go. So, and we got great between all of us, like film crew, writer crew, photos. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm selling myself out, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you want to hunt in Africa? 
I want a Cape Buffalo. Just, I think the sheer size of that would be so cool. I don't know enough of the species to really like be educated, but like anything with the cool, long, giant horns. (laughs) That's what, yeah. Yeah, Cape Buffalo is on my list too. Because again, Ian Harrison put it this way, and he wasn't really kidding because so many people get killed by those things every year. Their nickname is the Black Death. He said, it's one thing to have an animal within your weapon system, but it's another thing to be within theirs. You yeah, know, and I mean, a lot of these shots are scary close, you know, so they die at your feet. Or... <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, without a doubt, that's probably at the top of my safari list. Yeah, they're, I mean, it's cool to see the, the beautiful animals and like, I know you can't bring the meat back and stuff, but like, those are, there's a lot of animals that even if I went over there, I would just want to like eat, <laughs> like to try it in a different game, as weird as that sounds and just have a chef like prepare the things. It's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually speaking of that too, I know I circled around and came back, but like with hunting and stuff, because I know you guys again have awesome property. Are you, did you learn to skin a deer like early on or was that something like, do you, do you butcher? Do you process? Like, what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because that last one we just finished processing, it's like an eight hour day, but we process it all the way down to packaged, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not good at it, but the good thing is you don't really have to be good at it. So the key thing is skinning, skinning is kind of just like, I don't do anything with the skin. I don't tan hides or anything like that. I should, but I don't. My big thing is just get as much meat as possible off. So first thing you want to do, and there's all different opinions out there, but I still believe in gutting an animal. I think just taking the probably 25 pounds of gut sack out is just makes the animal a lot much easier to work with. And then you don't have to worry about nicking it by accident and spoiling everything. So, you know, you want to make sure you can gut the animal without rupturing the gut sack. And then from there, really just peeling back skin and cutting off meat. So, like I said, I'm not great at it. I never get amazing steaks. I got a lot more of this. I'm getting better as we go. (laughs) But my favorite thing to do with venison is grind it. You know, venison sausage, venison chili, venison nachos. So realistically, all I'm doing is trying to get every last bit of meat out of there and the big cuts that I can get off like the hindquarters, only to make roasts or cut those into steaks. And then you have your back straps. So I may not get perfect cuts all the way through, but we always get exactly what we want. And it's funny, like I was just telling Barb this. It's like deer hunting is... It's almost like... It's more primal to me than I think more people... So I kind of do it. Yeah, I think primal is a word I'm looking for because, you know, there's so many deer hunters out there and and more power to them. You know, they're all contributing to conservation and and I welcome you however you want to get in the woods. And as long as you're, you're ethically harvesting animals and doing the right thing with them, enjoy yourself and you're welcome. I welcome you. But there's a probably a disproportionate amount of people that will kill a deer and then drop it off at a processing plant. When And when I travel, I've done it too, but at home, especially since I literally drag them to the backyard, to the back door, I like to be as hands-on as possible. My goal is to make it as close to free meat as possible. So I don't bait, I don't use scents, I don't do anything. I go out there and I, no joke, I am your typical hunter with, unless I'm evaluating a gun, I have one rifle that I, is, is my go-to and I'm... I bought five boxes of ammunition for it, and I still have four left. This was like 15 years ago. (laughs) Maybe a little more. But the idea is I always like to try to get my most value out of an animal. So I'll pull a deer down and then do everything to it. And at the end of the day, it's like, hey, we just got 45 pounds of meat. And it cost me 130 out of six. Well, what about, I guess, because you own the land, you don't have to have a license. No, you do. Okay. Yep. So cost that. But a license is. I know. Yeah. I hear you. Because yeah. I've only ever done out of out of town hunts and like. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. That's that kills you. Yeah. yeah. Out of state licenses. So like out of state licenses, like one hundred and thirty, yeah. and in state is I think what did I think twenty five something like that. Yeah. But you get two tags, two tags with that. The dough tag like another eight bucks. You also, something that's cool in Pennsylvania is your hunting license gives you privileges to use all of the um, state game land ranges, which are just like free shooting clubs. So if you ever want to shoot somewhere else, and I belong to a, an excellent club here, a thousand yard range, you remember it. Yep. But, you know, winter, we have winter here. Imagine that. <laughs> 
it's nice to have those options because if one club is, you know, inaccessible because of the snow, you can go use state game lands, ranges, and do whatever you have to do. And then, you, of course, you can hunt on these ranges, yeah. these, these pieces of land, too, you know, thousands of acres, like everywhere else. But it's kind of cool to have shooting ranges on also. For sure. Question about the, the deer. Have you eaten the heart? No, you know what? I've never cared for any animal organ, so I, I don't eat that. I leave that for the yotes and... We don't it's need good. them either. <laughs> I, I dare you to try it. I'll give you a recipe. Dare you to try it. Well, heart, heart's probably, if I was going to eat an organ, that's an easier one because it's a muscle. Yep. You know, so heart's more, it's not like liver. Yeah. You know, I so. Like liver. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But if you've never tried it, how do you know you don't like it? It's just the idea of it. Yeah. No, I, that's fair. And there's not, there's not a lot, there's not a lot that I don't eat, but yeah, it's just something about that. But if you're talking and, about primal, I could probably get over that. Thing. Yeah. If you're talking about primal hunting, then you have to bite into the heart. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I wrong? You need a video? Yeah. Yeah. Daenerys Targaryen hung. Yeah. Sure. You know, it's funny, like, cause, you know, we're in Amish country and I'm looking at all the fat that's left over on this deer. I was like, somebody would turn this into soap. And I was like, I kind of want to learn how to turn this into soap. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. I think you should try. I think you should try. Oh, man. I, I will. I mean, like, that's that's the thing. It's like, I, there's so many things I want to try out there. I just need to find more time. As crazy as it sounds, you know, I mean, I, I think I write probably more than I should. I'll just say that. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I mean, some weeks I'm turning in four or five pieces, you know, I mean, and, you know, full feature pieces too, not like, you know, blog posts or anything like that. So it takes up a disproportionate amount of my time, but um, American Frontiersman, I love that publication. There's so many things there that I can pitch them that I want to do right here and not have the, the room to do it. So I still have a digital, so maybe I will. We'll see. If there's a soap article, I'll let you know. So I want the article from Frank of every single piece of a deer is used somehow. And so I want you to figure out how to use the hide and send tan the hide and do all the, all of it. Make oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, 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 we say native Americans, we say indigenous people indigenous now, right? People, the, the indigenous know. people, you know, you make tools out of the bones. I mean, yeah. you can literally use every part hide. You can tan almost any hide, which is the brain of the animal. Yeah. I want to say, and most people say always, I, a writer thing is I never say always, but the con the conventional idea is there's enough brain matter to tan the hide of any animal. Hmm. So, but yeah, so I mean, that's kind of there. And then you just have bones and, you know, there's waste meat, your organs, but you can use that as fertilizer. So, yeah. 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 Have, you, um, mm -hmm. have you ever dove into bow hunting or archery? Yeah, crossbow. Yeah. So I'm one of those guys. I like crossbow hunting. I always laugh because... You know, bow guy. Uh, the bow world is so cutthroat. Everyone hates crossbow hunters. The compound guy or the longbow hunters hate compound guys, and blah 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 blah. What I love the criticism to the to the crossbow hunter is, well, that's not archery. And I'm always like, no shit, it's not archery. I want to bring a rifle in, and this is the closest thing you'll let me do. So I bring this. It's like a rifle with a string. <laughs> There shouldn't be any And in my attitude towards that really just echoes what I said earlier. If it's helping you make an ethical kill, yep. then that's the right tool for you. Period. You know, there's too many people out there I feel that are trying to turn hunting into target work. And you know, if you can do it, great. But hunting is about you know, mold, melding into the environment undisturbed, in my opinion. You know, when someone's like, I made a 900-yard shot on a deer, it's like, you couldn't stalk 500 yards? That's how I look at it, yeah. you know? And it's like, cool, you made a 900-yard shot. I do it on steel all the time. If that 900-yard shot goes in the ass of something and then you have to listen to it die for three days, which I was on a hunt and I had to listen to that, to an audad die slowly over three days from a bad shot that could have just been stalked in, mm -mm. Um, that's not hunting anymore. So to that, to along the same lines, you know, why am I guessing trajectories with a longbow, you know, or hoping that, you know, an animal doesn't jump the string on a compound when I can put a high velocity crossbow with a, with a, a scope and a reticle right where it needs to be, put an arrow right there with the same precision as a rifle. Why is that a bad thing? Yeah. You know, it shouldn't, it, we want to give, you want every advantage you can get out there because it's only what's right to the animal.
It yeah. shouldn't be a game, you know, but... I was going to ask you about the optic on the, the crossbow. No, I have a big issue with um, ethically hunters and what they do and don't do because I've been in the processor a lot. Like, and I know where my shots are. Like, I've killed a deer with lung shot so I could preserve the heart because I wanted to keep it. Another one, I was like, all right, I'm just going to kill the heart there. And that was perfect heart shot. So it just depends on, on what I want, meat-wise too. But no, I saw some kid come in and he had like grazed the underbelly, like a gut shot, just the underbelly of this buck. And I guess they got oh. dogs. They had to track it for miles. They pushed it. I mean, it slow and painful death. And so I'm all for kids learning mm -hmm. how to hunt and stuff. But if that kid can't understand the reticle, doesn't understand trigger pull, like doesn't have whatever and, and doesn't know how, like, I don't want to see that. Like, so I'm all for them being out in the woods, maybe learning. And the reason I say that too, it's possible is that I shot PRS this year. And when I went to the gap grind, I literally was on a squad with kids that were nine, 10, 12, whatever. And there was a kid, you can't teach this, that like cleaned the stage with the mover at 500 yards. Okay. Clean, meaning all 10 points. You can't dial for the Thanks for explaining that. But sorry, no, for people listening, you can't teach a kid. <laughs> You can't dial the, for the kid fast enough to understand the lead on a target and when to pull a trigger, right? So for this kid to be able to do that and clean it, I'm literally speaking to people like listening, is that there are sniper children out there that are phenomenal and understand reticles. And so I just get really heated up about this because I have seen some, uh, yeah, I've seen some ugly things on animals that I'm like, you know what I mean? Ooh. How do you feel? How do you feel about the parent that hands the kid a subcaliber, you know, like 243 Winchester oh. or? Two, uh -uh. two, three. But it's the same thing Here's with like. Recoil or hurt them. <laughs> and that's not true either. I watch videos all the time. Oh yeah, you are. I know. You're getting me heated up. You're getting me heated up. But like, <laughs> <laughs> my bow. <laughs> my favorite addition to that argument is the people that say six five Creedmoor doesn't have enough power, but they've you know champion two forty three Winchester forever. You know. Yeah. It's just it's mind boggling. No, yeah, you know, I mean, re yeah, recoil sucks, but so does tracking a deer you know or losing a deer or if recoil sucks how about you put a suppressor on the end of it and i can promise yeah. you recoil will be yeah. reduced <laughs> yeah or a muzzle break right i mean you could break anything if you yeah. can muzzle break if you can muzzle break a 50 you know <laughs> yes did you see that suppressor the thunder beast 50 cal by the way that i shot in a bolt gun no it's 18 and a quarter inches long suppressor for a 50 cal that they had on a bolt gun. And it was the coolest thing nice. ever. And it's actually going to come out soon. So I was just like, dude, that's my new favorite suppressor. I don't so have I'll give you a little, little sneak peek of, uh, of reloading zone season four um, when it comes out. We did some 338 Lapua, depending on how you pronounce or how you like to pronounce it. Um, when I get on the gun or I come face to face with the gun. I'll get back to that pronunciation in a minute. It's like, wait a minute, there's no break on this. <laughs> so here I am doing low development with a 338 with no break on it. So that was fun. Yeah, no. So well, you know, you know Jeff over at Capstone and and Burger and mm -hmm. and Lapua. It's actually pronounced Lapua. Lapua. Is that for real? Lapua. Yeah, that's for real. Lapua. Because mm -hmm. that's it's a Finnish word. So when I was talking to him about Vitivori powder. And he's like, would you like to work some Lapua brass in there? And I was like, is this a new company? <laughs> and then he pointed at the side. And I was like, is that how I'm supposed to be saying that? I wrote a, a small piece for NRA Family, five five names or five industry names that are always mispronounced. That was one of them. Hornaday, right? Or Hornady or Hornady. I don't know why people have such a hard time with that one. Hoppies. I'm guilty of that. It's hoppies, not hops. And as old as it is, it predates, you know, I mean, it basically they invented the copper jacketed bullet and then they invented the cleaner right after it. So, I mean, in those days, if you didn't know the Hoppies family, you probably would have never heard it either because there was no other audio communication. I'm trying to think of the other ones on there. But yeah, you can find the NRA family. You want to link it, like go it. ahead. It was a fun, fun write. But our <laughs> industry is full of that. Huh. Oh, I was about to say, I have a list in my head. I'm like, oh God, there's like a million things I pronunciated wrong. I'm like, oops. Yeah. <laughs> But you have to think about it. You really have to think about it. Or like you said, know the family or know the origins. Or like even when it's, I've said Sig Sawyer wrong forever and it's sour. See, like, I'm sorry, industry. <laughs> I'm white. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, to tell you the truth, I've, I've probably heard it that way a few times too. It's all how one person says it and then it sticks in your head. You know, yeah. you know Sig is an acronym. S-I-G is an acronym. Four. I learned that. Probably, oh, geez, it's a Swedish, a huge Swedish name. I can't, that's why it's SIG, 
right? That's why no one knows it. But yeah, no, it's an acronym. I didn't realize that till I, I found out pretty early on in my writing career from an editor. I used to, I wrote for the last issue of Gun World before they, before they got pulled off the shelf, which is kind of cool to be in the last issue. But uh, yeah, Rob Manning, he's like, hey, by the way, it's, it's all caps because it's an acronym. And I asked him, I was like, what does it stand for? And he had to look it up. But yeah, no, it's an acronym. The same with SHOT. People don't know that SHOT's an acronym. You got to have it all capitalized. And there's, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. anyways, learning stuff. Lapua. Lapua. I don't know. That's going to take me a while. <laughs> yeah. And then you know what? It's So this is the argument. This is from, you know, Garand or Garand. You get to a point where if you say it the right way, at least in this country, you look silly or pretentious. So whenever I say it, like, like I'll never say Garand, ever. Even though it's almost proven dead to rights because it's a Canadian word and it's French. That's probably how it was. And it's very American to go grand, you know. So I'll still say grand. Always. I'll never change that. For Lapua, I almost always have this conversation whenever I bring it up. In Reloading Zone 4, we actually brought it up too. Like I opened with it. I was like. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Okay. So I have a couple rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, favorite caliber. Ouch. <laughs> that's not a rapid fire question. You know, that's like nine inches. What? Nothing. <laughs> favorite caliber. 30. <laughs> yeah, okay. He's like caliber, not cartridge, right? Yeah. Probably more with 30 than anything else. Yep. Uh, red dot or LPVO? Uh, LPVO. Okay. Illuminated, illuminated reticle LPVO. Oh, we're right? Yeah, we're getting specific. Well, then you get both. It's true. It's true. Hunting turkey, hunting deer. That's tough. Probably deer because, well, it's tough. It's really tough. Like deer, you get more yield for your hunt. Turkey, there's more cooperation. There's more participation, right? Calling and all that. I mean, it's... One of the coolest things I've ever done was call a Tom, and I did my first DIY turkey hunt last year, and it was successful, which was awesome. We have a great turkey property. Deer hunting, though, you still get that because they are so evasive. You have to do, in my opinion, everything right to take a deer, at least on our property because it's always going to be a close shot. It's going to be like a 10-yard shot. It's handgun hunting all day long. You have to do everything right for that to happen. So that's a tough one. But if I had to pick one and I can only do one, it would be deer hunting. Okay. Okay. AK or AR? Ah, this is America. <laughs> AR. <laughs> okay, you get to choose one handgun to carry for the rest of your life. Which one are you going with? Oh no. I, for, and it's the only it's the only one I can carry or the only one I can own. Only one you can carry. Oh carry, okay. <laughs> then I would go with I carry, I put it right in my purse, my my Ruger uh, LCP Max. And the reason I'll say that's the only one because the reason I have it and the reason it's part of my carry a few different guns is because if nothing else, I can always put that somewhere in a pocket holster. That's so it's true. true. Okay. Thank you for playing the game. <laughs> Those are not fun questions to pick one thing for sure. Well, Frank, we've talked about a lot on the podcast, which has been so much fun to have you on, but is there any final pieces of advice or nuggets or wisdom that you want to leave listeners with? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to do it. It's great to sit down and talk with you finally about this stuff. You know, I've been been on. <laughs> so let me, let me start. Let me redo that. <clears throat> so first of all, thanks for having me on. You know, I've been wanting to get on the show for a bit. I appreciate you reaching out. Uh, yeah, if I have advice for anybody, it's stay active or get active. You know, we added millions of gun owners to the fold in the last few years. And I can't tell you how many of them have bought that gun, put it in the closet, which is an awful thing to do with it, and haven't taken it to the range and and aren't on top of politics. You know, since the COVID years, you know, we've seen two international conflicts where they had to arm a populace right away. And, you know, in this country, when you needed a gun, you were able to get a gun. And that's slowly slinking away. So being as active with as many different organizations as you can and you know keep fighting because it's a right and like all of our rights if you don't exercise them they get taken away 
hundred percent. Now I know you're not teaching right now, but in the future, I know you probably will. Where can people oh, find? We're, we're still teaching. Okay. <laughs> we're still teaching. Okay. Yeah, and so we're not there every week though, like we used to be. But yeah, right. we're still we're still teaching plenty. In fact, we just put the 2024 schedule up. And if you're local to New York or want to travel, I mean, we've had some students travel quite a bit to take our stuff. RFI-shooting.com, and we just put up the 2024 schedule, and we'll have our long-range shooting for state up after January 1st. Awesome. That's what I was going to ask is the website for that. So it's Renaissance, I say that wrong, Firearms Instruction. And I have to admit it, even though I don't like to, is that Frank can get you on target pretty damn quick with the stupid 223 at 1,000 yards. So he is the man to learn from. <laughs> that was a $500 gun. Yeah. Right? Yep. So that was an Anderson build. You know, there was yep. nothing fancy about that, but... It was half minute of angle out there. So, yeah, it's funny because, like, when I write, I know you do the same, but like, when I write articles, especially in the competition scene, it's like it's never really about the gear, the guns, whatever. It's always about like the shooter knowing your data and having really good quality, whatever it looks like. Right. But it was funny because I'm oh, like, yeah. people too that just can read wind, they just know it. And they're like, that's what it is. <laughs> you know, your equipment has to be competitive, but the rest is up to you. Yeah. 100%. Well, Frank, thank you for coming on. Congrats on all your success. I guess I'll see you at SHOT Show next. Yeah, we should be. Yeah, it's yeah, maybe even before. Maybe we want to kind of hunt somewhere together. But you know you know how that goes. At the end of the year, there's always something that gets jammed. And duck season is I mean, usually right around now. The duck hunting bites will come out. But yeah, if not, we'll see you at SHOT Show. Sounds good. I mean, you know the drill, though. You invite me somewhere and I will show up. I know I learned the hard way. You did. You did. So <laughs> thank you and Bob for hosting me. And Frank, just adore you and your family both. And of course, your doggy. So I'll be back for sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Next time we'll get him in the podcast too. I'll get him in the room. Yay. Sounds good. Well, listeners, stay tuned for another episode of the Red Club podcast coming next week. Be sure to like, subscribe, and do all that jazz and stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening to the Red Club podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Follow along on social media at Redicle Up or 3 Gen Kenzie.